Hello there, listeners. This is Terry Wolf once again. I decided to start narrating and doing an audiobook for my newest book, which, if you didn't know, got released just recently. It's called The Paradox of Fundamentalism. It's actually part of a series that I'm doing called God's Fault. This is book one of the God's Fault series, and the title of the book is The Paradox of Fundamentalism. This is going to be the intro, the the forward beginning material of the book. So if you want to know about it, you just got to listen. For me, this is a very exciting time. I love putting out new books. I love being able to record them and have you guys give me feedback in the comments or, you know, purchase them, review them, um, email me. My email is maybewrong at protonmail.com. That's maybewrong no space or anything in between it, at protonmail.com. One last thing before I present the introductory material to the book here in this episode, I just want to remind you about the very name of this podcast and what it stands for, the Not Done Yet Podcast. I said this right from the beginning, and it's been the idea behind it the whole time. As long as God gives us time to question things, I want to be questioning, I want to be learning, and I want to get stronger in my faith. And one of the things about faith is that if it's never challenged, I don't think it grows. I think it's kind of like a muscle that you have to exercise. And if you want to increase your faith, you have to increase the challenges that you face. And with that said, I think it's time to start the introductory material to The Paradox of fundamentalism. Preface. Welcome to the first book of the God's Fault series. God willing, this will be the first of many installments exploring the paradox of reality in light of an almighty God. We begin with the paradox of the Bible itself, as well as those who champion it most proudly and directly, that is, the fundamentalists. To them, the Bible is supposed to be God's word, the guide to all important truth, and the ultimate weapon against delusion. But paradoxically, it has also been the source of many deranged beliefs, and few can peer through its mysteries to arrive at a fair interpretation we must examine what it means to be a self-proclaimed Bible believer and how to deal with the controversies embedded in our favorite holy book. Some don't even realize the Bible is a compilation of ancient texts written over many centuries by many different people in three different languages, translated by many people and bound together into a self-contained library. The question of language and cultural context is important to understanding these old scriptures. But the fundamentalist tends to oversimplify the idea of the Bible. In this book, we will not only acknowledge what's wrong about such simple assumptions, but ask what it means to the modern believer to invest in writings so far removed from the original authors and their culture. With this series, my goal is simple. I want to reduce cognitive dissonance in Christian worship. 
Cognitive dissonance is a psychology term for what happens when a person's preferred beliefs are contradicted by reality. Studies, and common sense, have proven that people refuse to acknowledge when such contradictions exist, denying unpleasant facts rather than reformulating their beliefs. We all experience cognitive dissonance to some extent, but when it comes to religion, it's especially dangerous to leave it unchecked. A great danger exists, because cognitive dissonance does not create a sense of shame about being in error, but rather a sense of pride. People love their delusion and try to convert others to believe the same things in order to surround themselves with people who won't judge them and instead support and reinforce their error. Dissonance, therefore, has its own evangelism, becoming like yeast or leaven, which spreads on its own and multiplies. Your boasting is not good. Do you not realize that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 1 Corinthians 5 verse 8 How much cognitive dissonance is in the church by now? In this series, I hope to explore the full breadth, although things have gotten so extreme that I wonder if any person can catalog even half of it. Many are unwilling to face the facts about God, the Bible, and human history to the point where we are in danger of promoting a counterfeit Christianity. I am concerned about offending weak Christians. Paul tells us to avoid doing things that would offend ignorant believers. Footnote. Romans 14 is entirely about this topic. End of footnote. Acknowledging that, even if they are misguided, it is more important to support them then give them a reason to doubt. He also explains that not all believers are ready for meat, but must be given milk, footnote, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 2, end of footnote, until they are ready. However, Paul was writing to brand new Christians in an era when there was no Bible at all, just Old Testament writings, and a new handful of letters that were still being written and spread around. These were pagan converts who had never been trained in Christian thought, giving up their entire civilization's history and identity in order to learn strange new doctrines about how to live. We're in a very different time period today, and I think we are more in need of this warning given by Jesus Christ to the churches. Because you say, I am wealthy and have become rich and need nothing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, I advise you to buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you may become rich, white garments, so that you may be clothed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see clearly. Those whom I love, I also rebuke and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Revelation 2, 17-19 
this warning is about overconfidence. Fundamentalists have been plagued by this problem, not because they reject the Bible, but because they talk so arrogantly about it. Rather than doing research and learning how to defend it with reason and evidence, they shut out arguments and let cognitive dissonance shield them from the controversies. The result is a steady descent into childish doctrines. Churches have specialized in protecting their members from the deeper truths, always catering to the lowest common denominator, never challenging the theology of the simple-minded, and promoting a childlike faith with milk instead of training warriors with meat. Maybe we're all getting a little tired of milk, however. In my experience of teaching the Bible, people have been very receptive to a more mature approach to difficult questions related to God and Scripture. If we don't tackle these topics, fake experts and cults will. A willingness to tackle these subjects not only helps clear away cognitive dissonance, but shows outsiders that their concerns are valid, but not impossible to address. Hiding from them won't do any good. We must face up to the real Almighty God, who treats this world as his footstool. Footnote. Isaiah 66 verse 1. Thus the Lord says, The heavens are my throne, and the earth serves as my footstool. Where then is the house you will build for me? Where is the place that I will rest? End of footnote. It is nonsensical to sing his praises while simultaneously turning a blind eye to his judgments. My aim is to align the reader with a more stark and unapologetic view of God. Yes, I say unapologetic, even though I must lament his choices before I can defend them. Others act as if they are defending him by pretending he is somebody else altogether. To me, honoring a false version of the true God is akin to serving a false God. That is idolatry. Ultimately, I will conclude this series with a theory that defends God's decisions as being just and righteous. But it is only after we eliminate cognitive dissonance so that we can see what kind of God we are supposed to revere. It will be necessary for me to wade deeply into uncomfortable territory and speak rather audaciously. Having already established some of my beliefs in my previous books, I feel comfortable continuing to overturn traditional assumptions for the sake of getting nearer to what I believe is an authentic relationship with the God of Israel. To Jesus Christ belongs all praise, power, and recognition, unto the glory of the Father. However, in keeping with the premise of this series, I should add, to him belongs all accountability as well. Introduction I write this book in grief for my brothers and sisters who have reached out to God for answers, but found only uncertainty. 
I can think of nothing more tragic. Because we know that our lives are but an opportunity to learn how to please God before the judgment. Many scholars and intellectuals have argued that the problem of evil is one of the greatest controversies of theology, but they're all wrong. The problem of evil states that an all-knowing, all-powerful God can't exist, because if he is all-knowing and all-powerful, he would never allow evil to exist and thrive. Therefore, they say, he must either not know everything or not be able to stop it. And although this paradox has bothered theologians for thousands of years, it is one of the dumbest arguments I have ever heard. Indeed, despite the premise of this series being about God's accountability for the problems of mankind, God's fault will not at all bother to waste time on it at length. The so-called paradox can be resolved in two words, Judgment Day. All evil and good will be dealt with on that day, so that every individual soul will meet its Maker and be given a verdict that is unquestionably righteous. The eternal wages of good and evil will more than make up for any fleeting sense of injustice we may experience in this short life. Theologians somehow ignore the Judgment Day's balancing effect. Frankly, they become fools, not taking the Word of God seriously enough. They are like little children who speak endlessly without knowing what they say, underestimating God. A fundamentalist believes that Judgment Day is real and live accordingly. Their theology acknowledges that it ought to reorganize the priorities of every last human being. But, for this very reason... It is not evil itself that should logically bother us, but the paradoxical path to pleasing God. Learning how to please God is the best thing a person can attain in life, and separation from God is worse than any suffering we could experience. Think about it rationally. For as bad as physical torment may feel, it only affects the body coming and going, and ultimately vanishing with our body's demise. And while emotional suffering, such as betrayal, isolation, and humiliation, can leave lasting scars on our hearts, these also edify us by showing us to turn to God for hope, not man. If we truly believe what the Bible tells us, it would be more enviable to be a tortured prisoner who owns nothing but the crown of salvation than a ruler of nations whom God despises. Seeking God's wisdom is the most urgent priority in life, and to ignore him is the greatest folly. Wisdom is supreme, so acquire wisdom, and of all the things you may obtain, obtain understanding. Proverbs 4, verse 7. We know how to acquire wisdom, because the Bible tells us plainly in many places. And he said to mankind, Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Job 
28, verse 28. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts gain a wealth of understanding. Psalms 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 9, verse 10. Amen. But now we see the real problem and why the millions of self-professed believers are struggling to understand the Bible and have a meaningful relationship with God. We can't fear God if we don't have an honest appraisal of Him. As long as we cling to a false version of God, we cannot fear the real Almighty and gain real wisdom. It would be like a child trying to respect their father, but mistaking a stranger for their father. The honor they give to the stranger is worthless. First, there must be a recognition of the real father. And again, speaking of priorities, the Apostle Paul gives us a wonderful reminder of what matters in life when he recounts his many misfortunes this way. I now count all things to be a liability compared to the far greater value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of everything, and I count it all as nothing but dung, that I may gain Christ in exchange. Philippians 3 verse 8 What an incredible statement! Most of us can hardly imagine losing everything we have, but if we lose it in the pursuit of Jesus Christ, we are really exchanging it for an eternal reward. That's what a fundamentalist would say, at least. And that's why we should have all the more sympathy for those who seek God, but do not find Him. As I said, nothing is more tragic. Due to their irrational devotion to the Bible, fundamentalists are the best and noblest of all the faithful in theory. They want an intimate familiarity with the text and no middlemen to twist its meaning. They say the Bible is not only sacred in the generic sense of being important and off-limits to tampering, but rather a divinely authored story meant for all of mankind to hear. This belief has carried the good book farther than any other form of worship. Fundamentalists are the ones who enjoy saying things like B-I-B-L-E stands for Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. The most extreme kind of fundamentalist has no fear of mankind, nor of death itself, but lays down his very life for the scriptures, knowing that there is no cause more worthy and that his reward is secure in heaven. The simplicity and beauty of such teachings, matched by a long and impressive history of martyrdom, ought to inspire courage and boldness in every believer. I have counted myself as a fundamentalist to the fullest extent, and I thank God that I was raised in such a tradition, as a Mennonite 
a people whose doctrinal forefathers were hunted through forests and ravines, imprisoned in dungeons, and tortured mercilessly for their unwavering adherence to the word of God. But there are other kind of fundamentalists out there, and they don't all see eye to eye. We will explore these differences to show how a shared struggle to embody its teachings proves that the text fails to produce clarity and consistency. Loved ones will die. Money will evaporate. And our accomplishments will be nullified by others. Woe to those who believe otherwise. However, because we know life is ephemeral, our paradox becomes all the more galling. Namely, that the Bible often disorients the very people who depend on it for hope. If we think of the Bible as a key that unlocks the door to truth, it seems to be bent so that it won't fit in the hole and give us access. Of all the tragedies the Lord has inflicted on mankind, blinding the eyes of those who desire the truth is the cruelest. Ah, but I have spoken foolishly already by implicating God in the destruction of man. May he forgive me. In this series I must speak as a great fool, because I sit astonished at his feet, not understanding the tragedy of the paradox. I refuse to deny the tragedy's existence, because I cannot afford cognitive dissonance. But I also cannot doubt the infinite goodness of my God. And so I sit as a fool and speak foolishly about my sorrow. Forgive me for this, reader. Perhaps by the end of this book you will see the paradox too, and fear God for creating it. If you have no love for your fellow man, it may be easy to dismiss the paradox of the Bible's failure to instruct mankind. But Christ commanded us to love one another, so how can we ignore it? Billions of humans are wandering to their deaths in ignorance, despite the Bible being the most popular book in the world. Some of you will shift the blame to the individual who stumbles, as if they ought to know how to navigate the surprising controversies of the text by instinct, or as if you are immune to these controversies yourself. Wiser readers might not dismiss the problem altogether, but only insist that knowledge about controversies is irrelevant, because we are commanded only to love our neighbors, etc. And in any case, we are saved by faith alone, etc. Very well said. But there is still confusion and ignorance everywhere leading men to doom. And the Bible is still under attack, which calls for a defense, and its supposed defenders do not answer properly. Reassuring ourselves about faith while closing our eyes and ears is not really faith, but dissonance. And I know someone else will assert that the Bible is flawless, no matter what people say, even without looking into the criticisms. But must we defend our faith by going into denial? Our own Bible says to seek insights and understanding above all. Let's not be hypocrites. 
If there is one thing profitable in this lifetime, it is a genuine search of the Holy Bible. But, much like worshiping God, we must be honest about it. I think some Christians are ready to pledge loyalty to the Bible on one hand, while abandoning it to Satan on the other. This is not virtue. It shows no regard for the lost sheep who need their shepherd and have been ensnared by arguments along the way. We can help dismantle the traps and set them free, but we have to acknowledge what's really going on. Too many have defended the Bible ignorantly, including myself. In the process, I am afraid we are making a mockery of it. I ask you, is that the best we can do to honor God? Does he want to be worshipped by sycophants and cowards who mouth prayers and sing hymns while turning a blind eye to controversies or suppress their discomfort? Is he pleased by sermons of men who delicately tiptoe around his judgments as if to avoid knocking him over and shattering him like a piece of fine pottery? Wasn't it our God who chose Moses as his friend, although he argued with him often and questioned his decisions? Wasn't it the angel of God who spoke thusly in Genesis 32 verse 28? Your name will no longer be Jacob, but instead Israel, because you have fought with God and with man and have endured. God chose for his people a man so stubborn that he wrestled with God's presence all night for no reason and afterward had the audacity to cling to him for a blessing. And when Jesus met the skeptic who doubted whether anything good could come from Nazareth, he did not rebuke him, but said in John 1 verse 47, Behold, a true Jew, in whom there is no deceit. Perhaps God is amused by a man who dares to face up to him and acknowledge the absurdity of our situation while still trusting him. And it is absurd, make no mistake. Some will say that speaking against God is to condemn your own soul. Perhaps so. But the love of our fellow man compels us to cry out anyway, for the sake of the doomed, to acknowledge the trouble of our condition and plead for help. Can we cry for help while we deny a problem? And can we acknowledge a problem without admitting that God could have prevented it? But what paradox, what condition, who is doomed? Let the reader survey the world's condition. Greater men than you and I have lamented its doom in the past. All the prophets, the saints, and the Lord himself were touched with sorrow for this world because they recognized the souls headed for oblivion. They had their own scoffers who also turned a blind eye to the crisis. Our present world is going to hell, and time is running out. What can be done about it? Can any of us turn the tide? If the answer is to worship the true God, so that we may shine as a guiding beacon to others, as we find in Matthew 5 verse 14, 
then we must hurry to realign our notion of God with reality. If the best way to please God is to be a fundamentalist, then the situation is grim. Not only do very few fit this category, but fundamentalists have their own problems, which we must explore in this book. Perhaps these problems can be overcome, but first we must understand what we're up against. We cannot rid ourselves of cognitive dissonance by fundamentalist confidence alone. Let me grieve this fact. This book contains the words of a tired man who has no other way to express his dismay. I hope there is still time to present not only the problem, but a possible solution by the time this series is finished. As of today, I still have the right as a Canadian who is protected by the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Section 2A, to speak about these things freely. It guarantees freedom of religion, which it defines this way. The right to entertain such religious beliefs as a person chooses. The right to declare religious beliefs openly and without fear of hindrance or reprisal. And the right to manifest religious belief by worship and practice or by teaching and dissemination. This is precisely what I will be doing in this book. Let me also state emphatically that I am not an expert on anything, and I have never been educated properly. I have written two books on religion so far. Maybe Everyone is Wrong, Revelations, Conspiracy, and the Kingdom of Heaven, and its follow-up, Fire in the Rabbit Hole. Here, I will not put forward a particular hypothesis as I did in those books, but I must again speculate on many things out of ignorance. I have consulted many experts in one form or another, and I've done as much research as I could, but it is the very confidence of experts that robs me of my own. Their weak arguments, condescension, arrogance, and assumptions only testify to the magnitude of the true crisis. God help us. Rather than positing a theory, I put forward a question. Why does it have to be this way, God? Is this the best you could do to help the helpless? What is the divine reason behind all of this disputation? I want to pray to God to help listeners to question things respectfully the way that you would question a father. You love your father. You trust your father. But you don't pretend to know more than your father. And when your father does something that you don't understand and it challenges you, the appropriate response is not to say, oh, I get it. Oh, yeah, I, whatever you say, I, I'll just do it without any kind of appreciation for the fact that he's giving you a challenge for a reason. The reason why the challenge exists 
is to push you a little bit further. And you're allowed to question it, but just do it respectfully. I mean, you can have a childlike faith. In fact, I think we need to enter the kingdom, like Jesus said, with that childlike faith. But if you want to mature as a Christian, which should be the goal, then you need to grow up, and growing up means questioning. You don't grow up if you never question, if you never challenge yourself. So this book should help you do that, and I pray that the listeners will be ready for that journey. So long, so long.